Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Good to be with you this morning. And I realized when I jumped up here, I was focused on singing about coconuts and apples and stuff. So I didn't formally welcome those of you who are visiting here today or are guests among us. We're just really thankful that you're here. And if you've joined us online as a guest or for the first time, or maybe you checked us out a year ago and now you're back, welcome here. Uh, for all of us who call Erickson Covenant home, I'm glad that you're here today with us. And I hope that today is really encouraging. We're uh, in a little September series about God's crazy idea of you. Yeah. You're not laughing. The crazy idea of the church, of you, men and women here, but around the world, particularly uh, the one holy apostolic church that's not marked by a sign that's on the front, but rather what's going on inside What's going on within relationships? What's going on as people live out their faith in Jesus in the world? Now, I've got a question for some of our elders among us. You ready for this? An event that happened so long ago, I can barely remember it. 1988. Who, who actually attended, like in person, some of the 1988 Winter Olympic Games? Carl, you did? Anyone else? Peter, Eileen, yeah, 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 it was in Calgary, right? Winter Olympics. Now, did any of you actually see the Jamaican bobsled team? Oh, my goodness. You did. This is, is it, most of us just watched the movie, right? With John Candy, which I hear only has a smattering similarity to the real thing. But it was such a story. The story of a, a team of unexpecteds, right? People that you wouldn't have expected coming from a country that didn't see a lot of snow. And, and, and yet, somehow they were pulled together and they were able to compete and make history in that way. It was a beautiful story. And we actually love those kinds of stories, don't we? Stories of misfits, stories of unlikelies who are pulled together and somehow made into a functional team that is at least able to compete, but sometimes the stories we really like are when they actually pull off a win. And it seems like the more impossible the task, the more inspiring the story. You can think of some of your favorite, maybe sports movies, stories, or other, other stories, that it's this odd collection of people that have been pulled together. Well, when it comes to the band of misfits called The Church, again, looking around, <clears throat> The Church... God's crazy idea to make us one people united in him, which we explored last week, that seems like a tall order, something that only God can do. But I want to just say for a moment, not so fast, because it gets worse. It gets even more unlikely than that. Because you see, God doesn't just take a ragtag group of misfits and then adopt them all into the same family. He does make us a unified team. He does. But... He fashions us into a holy people who actually look like him. I mean, you think being united is a tall order. Try holiness. 
on God's part, that is, like trying to make us holy. You don't think that's unlikely? I, I think it is. God doesn't want to just make us united in him. He wants to make us holy like him. And I think this part of the plan, the holy bit, is the craziest, most unlikely idea of this whole project. Does anything seem less true of us? I mean, when you look down through history, let's just point fingers at someone else for a moment. When you look down through history, holy church, seriously, when you look around, but when you also look in the mirror, does a holy church seem likely to you? I mean, it's sort of like, God, if you're really in the business of making us holy, you better put like your miracle gloves back on or something. Because you've got your work cut out for you. This is next level radical stuff. But what we discover is holiness is God's intention. That he set out to make a people for himself. Set apart from all others. That God is committed to forming a people who are going to stand out. Who shine through. Who actually function and live and think and act and love differently than those around them because they're actually following different orders. They're listening to a different soundtrack. They're watching a different conductor. They're training with a different coach. And that at least is some of what it means to be holy. And so the apostle Peter, he took this holiness business and he wrote in a letter, his first letter, to these Jesus followers that were scattered throughout the ancient province of uh, Asia Minor, kind of modern-day Turkey and around there. Uh, these, the majority of these particular followers of Jesus that he was writing to were misfits themselves. They were an odd collection, mostly of non-Jewish people, hailing from a scattered uh, group of Greco-Roman cities or colonies, but they had come to believe in the Jewish Messiah, in Jesus. They'd become part of this one new humanity that we talked about last week, the Church of Jesus Christ, which is now inclusive of all ethnicities. And through Jesus, these old creation boundary markers that have kept people apart. Categories such as Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We looked at that last week again. They've been rendered irrelevant in the one body of Christ. I encourage you to catch up on last week's message um, on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, on our, on our website, ericsoncoven.ca. It's important to understand that. Well, Peter's writing to encourage these followers of Jesus who are experiencing pressures in their lives some of them even hardship and abuse, because of their faithfulness and their obedience to Jesus. And Peter wants to help them understand their suffering is a way in which they're sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, really consistent in his book, his letter about that. And he's challenged them to continue to be faithful in the places that God has called them to live and serve. And as he encourages them, Peter does what all the New Testament authors do. He helps them get clear on who God is and who they are so that they then can see what difference that identity makes in their lives. And where does he go in 1 Peter? He goes straight to holiness. Peter wants these Jesus followers to understand that because they belong to a holy God, they are his holy people. But before we go any further, I think we ought to table talk a little bit. I mean, I have you sitting around tables. Some of you hate it anyway. Let's just make it worse for you make you talk to each other. And so here's my invitation to you to talk amongst yourselves for a moment. What does holy mean to you? Like, what does the word mean to you? And 
And maybe as you define it then, let's talk a little bit about how has the word holy been misunderstood or misused or confused, both by the church and those outside the church, just culturally. So what does holy mean to you? How has it been misused or confused? Take a moment. If you're at a table with barely anyone, go ahead and shift over to a table with a few more people. Feel free to walk about. But go ahead. What does holy mean to you? How has it been confused? For those of you who are with us online, I encourage you to do the same thing. You can chat amongst yourselves. If you're sitting with someone else, talk about what it means to be holy for you and how that's been confused or misused. But if you're alone, I invite you to write some things down. Jot around some ideas. What does it mean to be holy? How has that been misused or confused in your own life, in the church, outside the church? Let's just take a few moments and discuss that. Well, I love that you're discussing stuff around your tables. Well, I know that probably not everyone got a chance to share, but uh, what are some of the things that came up for you? Let's start with uh, just some one-word shout-outs or phrase shout-outs of what holy meant. And, and, and just let me just caveat this for a moment. It doesn't have to be, quote, the right answer. I, I want to know just kind of what people thought. So what was holy for you? Set apart. Unattainable. Unattainable. Unblemished. Sacred. Respectful. Spiritual interaction, do you say, Terry? Okay. What, what else? Hit me with it. A constant dichotomy. Okay. What else? Touched by God. Anyone else? What about some of the ways holiness has been, or the word holy has been misused or confused? Any, any thoughts on that? Holier than thou. Thank you. But, say that again. Superior. Yeah. No, fun at all. Even though the word fundamentalist has fun in it. Good. Pride. Perfection. It is used in a lot of swear words. Yeah. Power. Did you say camera? Sorry. Yep. Power. Yep. Yep. Any, anyone else? Keith. Yes, that's true, Keith. Yeah, and they say we got to put the fun back into fundamentals, right, Keith? That's right, more or less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, however this word has been used, misused, understood, misunderstood, it's God's crazy idea to make us, big us, a holy church. And where did we get that idea? Well, it's actually a pervasive biblical idea. It is everywhere. Right back from the earliest moments of God's people featured throughout the Old and New Testaments. And so we've heard it already read this morning from First, uh, from first Peter, from the Apostle Peter. And I want you to notice, we're not going to look at that whole big, aren't you thankful? This whole big passage that Valerie read. She read a much larger context. But you'll notice how Peter constantly reaches back to the Torah, to the Old Testament, in order to frame their new covenant identity as God's holy people now. And so beginning in verse 13 of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 
Therefore, with minds alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. As it is written, be holy because I am holy. Let's say that together. Be holy because I am holy. And this is the ground floor of Christian living, that God is holy. The holy who? His identity is holy. And his identity is holy shapes our identity, that we are a people who belong to, or in the biblical language, who are images of, meant to reflect the holy God who made us. But what does it mean when we say God is holy? Well, we don't say God is holy. He declares it. But when we, when we express that, what do we mean? I mean, in the simplest definition, holy means holy other, different than, unique, set apart. We heard that a bit, but let's look a little bit deeper because there's at least five ways. I'm sure there's a dozen more, but there's at least five ways that holiness, God's holiness is featured in the scriptures. You might want to write notes for this because I, I couldn't stop myself when I was writing mine. First, holiness means that Yahweh, I'm going to use the word Yahweh, name Yahweh. That's the personal name for God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Israel. Uh, holiness means that Yahweh is utterly unlike all the other gods, all the other deities, all the other idols. Utterly unlike, that's the word. There's just no comparison between Yahweh and everything else. That he's the one true God overall, and all these other so-called gods are really just rubbish idols. And you'll see that featured all the way through, particularly the Old Testament, Psalms, Prophets. Just this morning in my Bible reading, the Bible in one year, off the YouVersion app, in, uh, let's see, it was Isaiah 44, you hear it again, where there's this kind of mockery toward idol worship. It's like, oh, I see, so you have a block of wood, and with one block bit of wood, you... Um, you're carving your idol, but you get a bit cold, so you, you take some of that wood and you start a fire to warm yourself up with. You know, it's, it's that kind of prophetic kind of mockery because they understand that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is utterly unlike these other false gods. From Psalm 96, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Or from my reading in 43, Isaiah 43 this morning, um, I stole it and stuck it in my notes here. Um, he says, you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You've been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. So this is like consistent all the way through. Holiness means that Yahweh is utterly unlike any other God. Second, holiness means that Yahweh is uniquely himself. Now, let me sound similar, but let me break it apart. This is central to understanding God's holy identity. He is utterly other, yes, but he's also utterly himself, uniquely himself. He's not part of a category of beings. We often think of that. Well, he's a God, and we understand kind of what gods are. There's this category. There's this, there's this um, idea of God. And, you know, it's hard to talk about God and other gods without having some comparisons, some ideas. But the truth of the matter is, Yahweh, the true God, is not part of a category of beings. His essence is unique to him alone. 
Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't share himself with others. That's the beautiful thing about this God. But it means that no others are him. He made some others that are meant to be like him. But they're not him. Yahweh is holy and uniquely himself. And so when uh, Moses asked, you know, he's standing in front of a burning bush. He's sent on this big mission. He says, okay, well, you've got to give me something here. Tell me who I am supposed to tell them sent me. And his answer is still a bit confusing. Yahweh answers and says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or kind of pick whatever tense you want. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you, which I just, I just love. Because I always feel when I read that, Moses just went, is that, was that, was that supposed to be helpful? You know? Anyway, but it expresses the fact that Yahweh is utterly, completely, uniquely himself. Third, holiness means that Yahweh is totally faithful. Yahweh reveals himself from day one all the way through as a covenant-making, promise-keeping God, whose very holiness is characterized by loving kindness, faithful care. It's captured in this wonderfully complex Hebrew word called chesed. And it, 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 it's a word that can be, so many English words are, are used to try to get at the meaning of that word, loving kindness and faithfulness and loyal and uh, real and uh, all the things. And of course, this builds on the first two points we've already talked about. He's utterly like the other gods who are slime balls, who ask you to sacrifice your kids, who wreck your life. You know, those gods, utterly unlike them. But he's also uniquely himself, and he reveals that utter unlikeness, that trueness to himself through his faithful, hesed love to his people, to his world. And so we hear over and over again, we're going to sing it as we complete today, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We hear that all over. That's from Psalm 103, but it's this fact that Yahweh will not forget his promises. He will always remain faithful to himself, to his people, to his promises, to his purposes. That's how holy our God is, which leads us to sharpen yet another feature. Number four, Yahweh is unequivocally good. Unlike the other gods and true to his inherent character and inner life, Yahweh is always and completely and without exception, good, good, good. Mike also picked good, good father to sing this morning. These are just emphasizing the same points. Mike, did you read this? Before I wrote it, the Holy Spirit's at work here. In 1 John 1, 5, uh, this fact forms the kind of the foundation of the good news that we preach about Jesus. This is what John said in 1 John. He said, this is the message we have heard from him, referring to Jesus, and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, is without blemish. There's no hidden elements of evil or sin, no ugly stain, no shadow of deceit, no skeleton in the closet. There really is no more truthful statement that we can make than God is great, God is good. And then we usually follow up with, let us thank him for food. But, you know, there's a powerful statement there. God is great. God is good, and his goodness anchors our lives and is a direct expression of his holiness. Now, we might wrestle. I know we do. I do. We might wrestle with how this is true and how we work that out and, 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 and how sometimes in light of how awful things can be, 
that God is good. But in the end, we hold on to that fact. Yahweh is good and back fact, faithful. Through and through, he'll make sense of this. He'll make good on his promises and say that without equivocation. And then the fifth element of holiness, which I think is always important to remember, it means that Yahweh is always just. God's holiness is against all forms of sin, destruction, evil. God's holy hatred of sin is an expression of God's holy love because God knows the extent to which evil destroys lives and sin wrecks life. And so his holiness is always, always, always against it because he is always, always, always for us, for creation. He's against sin, which means that God doesn't simply overlook sin, turn a blind eye to evil, because that would be evil in itself, right? We understand that. Sometimes people don't think that through. But when you stop yourself, you realize a God who would overlook sin and go, oh, yeah, I know. Well, what's, a, what, you know what, what's killing a few people, you know, in light of everything? No, that would be a bad God, a bad judge. God doesn't simply turn his blind eye to that. But he promises, because he's totally faithful, because he's unequivocally good, to deal with sin, to deal with death once and for all, which he did by sending Jesus Christ, who is both the righteous judge and the condemned sinner. So we always have to remember that God's utter hatred for sin is what led him to give up his own life for us. In 1 Corinthians 5.21, we read that God made Jesus who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Beautiful stuff. So you got all that? That was just preamble to God's crazy idea. But these five features really do fill out, I think, what the Bible means when it declares that God is holy. When we sing holy, 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 it's this holy God that we're talking about who acted to rescue his people from slavery, from sin, from death, who calls the people to himself, who forms them into a worshiping people. This is the holy God to whom we all must respond. And so the apostle Peter here is saying, look, this is who God is. And because it's who he is and because you belong to him, you're to be holy in all you do. He's holy in all he does. You need to be holy in all you do. We need to be holy and all we do. And of course, Peter doesn't just stop there. He first talks about God being holy, and I've tried to bring in some background so we understand what he means there. But he wants us to understand how our identity is shaped by that, right? And so he makes a whole bunch of identity statements about us. Talks about the holy who? God, but the holy who? You. Listen to how Peter moves on to that. We heard it already, but First Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, but you our chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is extremely eager that followers of Jesus understand their holy identity. And so he catches up a handful of descriptions from the law and the prophets to describe God's holy people. And now he applies it logically. These are now all the people of God, logically to these expanded people of God. And he can do that with a straight face. As a dyed-in-the-wool Jew, he can look at all this odd collection of Gentiles and call them the people of God and take the same 
you know, categories and descriptors that he would have been raised understanding himself and his people with and realizing it now applies to all who are in faith in Jesus, all who are part of the family. Formerly outsiders, oh yeah, but now you're sitting at the dining room table. Well, these four titles deserve a little attention, so let's look at them. They deepen our identity. What does it mean to be holy? So first, God's holy people are chosen people. That is, though we were once standing on the outside, not chosen, God reached out and brought us in. We are now part of the elect people of God, the chosen people of God. Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, in that sense, holy means chosen, in the sense that now you are not like you once were. Now you are part of the set-apart group. Now you're uniquely loved. Now you're a member of the family of God that he wanted you and he wanted me, he wanted us to be part of his one people. God handpicked you. Beautiful, isn't it beautiful? And you wonder sometimes, I know. You look around and think, really? You picked him or her? But really, I think on most days we look in the mirror and go, really? You picked me? But he did. And this shapes our identity as God's holy people. We've been picked. Second, God's holy people are a royal priesthood. Now, when you read through the law, particularly Exodus and Leviticus, and if you haven't had a chance lately to do it, I certainly encourage you to do that. You see how all the priests were set apart and consecrated for their special service to the Lord. In the later story, kings, too, were anointed for their task and would often perform a a kind of priestly role as long as they didn't step across the line too much. But they were. They were there. They were kind of offering sacrifices, and they were in there. What we see here is a merging of two ideas, that now, as members of the king's family, we're set apart and consecrated into his service as priests. And this is a theme you will see all over the New Testament, that ours is a holy vocation that through Jesus, all believers, without exception, not just, well, certainly, Lord help us, not just clergy or pastors or paid special people, all believers, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their economic status, whatever their biological sex, all these things, we all have access to the Father, through Christ, by one spirit, now quoting Paul, and we're able to offer praise to God directly, even as we also intercede and represent God to other people. Royal priests. Look around, folks. All the stuff's going on about royalty these days. You're you're having tea with the queen right now. Third, God's holy people are a holy nation. That is, we now operate as citizens of a holy kingdom, a set-apart kingdom, apart from all other nations. Yes, we still function as citizens of our respective nations, Canada, U.S., France, China. We still function as citizens of those countries insofar as we are able to do that and be faithful to Yahweh. But our national citizenship is of second-order priority. Our loyalty is there, but it has a limit. And the very way we live in that political relationship that we're all in, whether it's in small or big ways, it's characterized by our first-order loyalty. 
as citizens of God's holy kingdom now. Not the particular nation states and their geopolitical ideologies, but by God's holy character, and if I can put it this way, by his theo-geopolitical truth. His vision of the one people of God. And that's a whole message by itself. Can you tell? We could go there, but we're going to leave it. Just know this. Part of what it means to be holy means we're part of God's holy kingdom. Fourth, God's holy people are his special possession. That is, we've been bought with a price. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that. God takes his purchase seriously. The holy good jealousy of God, not an ugly jealousy, not the weird stuff you can see happening around, but the loving jealousy we see demonstrated through the Old and New Testament from God for his people is an expression of how highly God regards his people. And a lot of our specialness comes from this fact. The God of the universe came to share our humanity, and he did so in order to defeat death for us. You've been bought with a very, very high price. And so, therefore, your value is extremely high. It's kind of like, you wonder, I know. It's kind of like, you know when random household stuff becomes special because someone famous owned it? This week, I caught a little glimpse of that. In all the after effects of uh, sharing around the queen having passed, there was a, a, a I don't know, reporter was talking to a, a family, an older fella, who was reminiscing on how the queen visited his farm in Manitoba in like the 1970s, which is pretty cool. And so he's flipping through this big honking photo album. Remember those things? They have cellophane on them? Okay. So flipping through this big phone, big phone for you younger folk. Um, anyway, and then as he's flipping through it, he comes upon something very special, something they've kept in their family. Was, wow, this queen is here. Do you know what it was, folks? It was a tea-stained napkin. White. Didn't have any writing on it. A white. It's like the queen had, like, kind of sloppy, to be honest. She'd spilled a lot of tea on that napkin. Maybe it was on purpose. Uh, But it was this tea-stained napkin that had been, like, put behind cellophane in the guy's photo album. And it was like, for 50 years now, they've been showing it off to friends. For no other reason, we don't need it. Uh, You know the reason. Queen, man. She, like, slopped on that thing. Even a piece of garbage can become significant, depending on who owned it or touched it, spit on it. You're a person who was bought with the blood of the Son of God who created the universe. Think about that for just a moment. And you're special. Really, really special. That's where, when, you know, you get the holy jealousy business. That's where God's saying, like, are you kidding me? I paid a lot for that thing, that guy, her. But where does this all take us? It takes us to worship, and it takes us to witness. In a phrase, we're the worshiping witnesses of our holy God. We have these designations, Peter says, so that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness 
who chose us, who consecrated us, who brought us back from death and made us as kingdom citizens, who brought us to life in Jesus and understanding who God is and who we are erupts into praise. When we get this down deep, when we meditate on this truth, we praise out of that. It turns our hearts to worship the holiness of God. But it also just naturally gets us talking about God elsewhere too. We start declaring his praises to people who aren't looking for it. <laughs> what? What are, you, what are you talking about now? Huh. Yeah, you can't help yourself. Worshiping witnesses is a result of the holy who. God is holy. We are holy. And now Peter moves this into practice. All of this being true, God is holy. We are his holy people. In a sense, he comes back to the question we might have had. What does it mean to be holy in all that we do? Well, in short, it means there are certain things we do not do. And there's certain things we do do. To be the holy people of God. And I think it's really helpful just in the next couple of verses, that's where Peter takes us. First, let's look at holiness as a holy no. Verse 11 of 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. He's already said a similar thing in that earlier passage in verse 14 of chapter 1. He said, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So there's a theme going on here. The truth is, we will often have to give a holy no because we're the holy people of God. And learning to say no is critical to our spiritual maturity, just as learning to hear a no and live obediently is part of maturing as a child. We know this is true. In order to live as God's holy people in a crooked, sinful, soul-destroying world, we got to be ready and willing to give a few no's here and there. There's a ton of stuff lying around that will kill you. Do you know that? There is, if you're not careful. When the children of Israel were uh, rescued out of Egypt, they were then given a lot of guidance because they had no idea what to say no or yes to. They were given a lot of guidance, particularly on how to say a holy no. This is one of the basic foundations of the Torah. And much of what's explained, you know, don't do that, was because of their unique chosen status as the holy people of God. We hear it over and over again. They're not to be like the other nations around them, particularly, particularly not the nations of the very country, land that God was giving to them because he was judging those nations for the way they had lived in evil, wretched, destructive behavior. Don't be like them. They're getting kicked out because of what they were doing. And much of the Torah expresses this as a need for purity, for holiness. And it's worked out into every area of life, stunningly. I know, we read it now and think, what? I mean, holiness in your clothing, your food, sexuality. Okay, we kind of get that, but we still struggle with it. But creation care and animal husbandry and festivals and fasts and worship and marriage. And we think there's a lot of don'ts in there, but this is critical because if they don't give a holy no to things that would have just seemed natural to them, normal, they wouldn't have survived. 
And these holy no's were key ways that the children of Israel were to remain holy, as in different, set apart, unique, chosen. Life was set before them. And so it's actually no surprise then that we find the passage that Peter's quoting, be holy as as I'm holy, guess where it's found? In Leviticus. And its original context was couched right in instructions about the foods they were supposed to say no to. So here's the original quote from Leviticus 11. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy as I'm holy. Did you get that? Be holy. Don't eat that thing. Be holy. That was what's going on here. They need to understand how they're different. And it comes right down to even the way they eat their food. Well, now Paul, Peter, I preach a lot from Paul, don't I? Peter takes this original command and he plunks it down in their context now and reminds them and reminds us that being faithful and following Jesus means we're going to have to say no to a lot of soul-destroying things that seem normal to us, seem just like everybody else is doing it, so why can't we? And what are the things that are going to destroy us? Well, Peter, consistent with his master, Jesus, who took things down to the inside, challenged the Pharisees and said, you're all worried about what you're putting in your mouth. Why don't you start worrying about what's in your heart? It's easy to point around, look at all the culprits. But Peter locates the problem in here. Sinful desires, which war against our souls. Because our identity has changed, these things are no longer acceptable. We've got to learn to say a holy no to them. The truth is, we all want experiences or things or feelings that, if they were not checked, would destroy us. We can all recognize that. And abstaining from those desires or refusing to do certain things or saying no to a particular practice or choosing to exempt yourself from specific activities, there's a long history of that among God's people. And that's important. And as you all know, this doesn't come naturally to us. We're much more apt to go along with whatever we've been raised with, whatever attitude we've been told is normal, whatever we're kind of used to, whatever our folks taught us. And plus, we live in a culture that tells us that our desires are right. In fact, man, you better not repress that desire because you'll hurt yourself. You know, no one wants a repressed individual walking around. You're going to blow. You've got to be authentic. Live into your truest desires. What a disaster that's been. We live in a culture that tells us your desires are right and holy and true and good, whatever it is. Repressing is wrong. We live in a culture that tells us that we should be the ones who decide what's good, what's bad, what we should say no to, what we should say yes to, you be you. Um, you know, with no reference to any kind of higher authority. But as followers of Jesus, as children of a holy God, we know differently. We know that we're not the judges. We're not that wise. And we entrust ourselves to God's good authority, revealed to us through Jesus, through the Scripture. And the Holy Spirit has his work cut out for him, doesn't he? (laughs) I think he does. To get us to move in a holy direction, (laughs) saying no to the very things we thought 
would bring us life. In fact, everything tells us this will bring you life. What's more, saying no when we live surrounded by people that demand that we say yes, or at least say it's okay, can make you very unpopular even if, when you're not telling them what to do. Even if you're simply choosing to do it for yourself, you get stoned. You'll get called judgmental or elitist or foolish or puritanical or at best, odd. And it could be part of the reason why these Christians were experiencing pressure from others, even in their context. Now, it is true that Christians have not always been very good at the holy no. We, we can acknowledge that, right? We, we, we know that it's often been a confusing thing to know what to say no to. And it's to our shame, historically and otherwise. We've been known to major on minors and ignore elephants who are hiding in rooms and strain at gnats instead of dealing with our own spiritual pride and folly. So I think we need to acknowledge that and be humble about this, that we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scriptures, alongside brothers and sisters both living and dead, books, to navigate effectively what exactly is soul-destroying and what is just distracting us from the main thing. And we need to have a posture of repentance every step of the way. But make no mistake about it. And if you're a new follower of Jesus or you're just exploring faith, you need to hear it. As much as we say, you know, and there's real truth here that following Jesus is not about do's and don'ts. There are do's and don'ts, friends. Because some of those don'ts are trying to get you not to die. Like when you're raising kids, there's do's and don'ts. Because there's things out there that will kill you. Being holy means saying no. And Peter makes it very personal. He, he calls us to be vigilant on how much we can be duped into unholiness within ourselves, being and acting and thinking and pursuing what everyone else is. And so we're called to exercise our no muscles, giving a holy no to our desires for comfort, for example, over growth, or our desire to spread gossip because of how it makes us feel so good, rather than love and speak the truth in love our evil desires to harbor unforgiveness rather than pursuing reconciliation or to foster our prejudice rather than letting the Holy Spirit clean up our hearts and minds. And so we need to hear it. I think it's important. We need to be willing to let the Holy Spirit strengthen our holy no to certain sexual practices or desires that we have, to relationships that don't honor God, to say a holy no to a desire to get even, or even to be regarded as better than others. We need to learn to issue a holy no to spiritual pride or spiritual elitism or snobbery. Really anything that does not align itself with who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus. And this is the essential work of spiritual formation, the work of the spirit in our lives. And so let's just name it. Abstaining from destructive desires is part of being God's holy people. That's why we practice spiritual, and we call them disciplines, such as fasting. Oh, my goodness. Who wants to fast? Nobody. A few, and they're questionable folk. <laughs> Learning to say no to our desires. Learning to practice the Sabbath. Or be silent. These acts of saying no are critical to our spiritual lives, that we need to learn to say no and say it regularly. 
Because if we never have a no muscle, how are we ever going to stand a chance of being the holy people that God has called us to be? Repeat after me. As followers of Jesus, say it. As followers, uh, it's not going to be that much of a trick. I'm not tricking you into saying something terrible here. As followers of Jesus, we do hard things. Yes, we do. We do hard things. We say no to some things. We even say no to good things for a time, like fasting. But we learn to say no as a reflection of our identity, reflection of our God. Not to boost spiritual pride. That is always a danger. But rather, to learn how to deny ourselves, to decenter our desires, and to grow that spiritual fruit. Oh, the one we never want to do, which is self-control. I think patience is bad. Self-control. So that we're being disciplined by the mind of Christ in obedience to the Spirit and the Word, even when we don't fully understand why. And so here's my practical challenge for you. I am getting close to being done. I knew I had too much. Uh, here's my challenge to you. Incorporate one holy no discipline into your life this month. Skip a meal. Leave your phone off for 24 hours. Try silence. Maybe there's an area of your life where you've really been struggling with control. Like, like me when I start into a bag of chips and realize later, Usually Ethan says, where did that bag of chips go? What bag of chips, right? There's certain things we're going to say no to. And it might even seem minor and a little bit of a joke, but seriously, say no to learn to say no. So incorporate one holy no discipline into your life this month. Need some help identifying what some of those no disciplines are? I will help you. I mean, understand what some of the options are. But giving a holy no, of course, is never enough. This is very important. This is the problem that many fundamentalists had historically. They figured out that if you just kept your nose clean and didn't do a bunch of stuff, then you were holy, right? Right? Wrong. It gave rise to pride, to self-centeredness, to isolation, to self-deception, and in fact, didn't actually contribute to holiness at all, which is another trick of the evil one. What we discover is that our holy no is always married to a holy yes. And that's where Peter goes. Just next. Look at that. Verse 12. He said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The holy yes is about living good, that we say yes to God in a way that we live our lives right in the middle of the mess that is God's world. Holiness is never just abstinence. It's also engagement. It's not just saying no to evil desires. It's about doing good for others, pursuing God's desires in the world. As God's holy foreigners and exiles, which Peter points out, we do live out of sync with the cultures and the nations and the neighbors and the friends around us. And for those of you who've come to faith in Jesus and uh, maybe later in life, or maybe none of your family members are followers of Jesus, you know what it's like to live out of step with your family, to be the only one in your family who is following a different order. 
whatever else we may share in common with people, and we share a lot, and you know me well enough to know that I emphasize that a lot. Whatever else we may share in common with some people, with people, all people, if you don't share the same holy God, you're not part of the same holy family, period. I know, I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with drawing those kind of lines. My personality rails against it. But this is just true. And it makes us different. Just to name it, it actually makes us holy. So we should expect dissonance. In some ways, that's what 1 Peter's all about. Expect it. What? Don't, don't, Don't go, oh, I'm suffering. It's like, what? Of course you are. Look who you're following. Look what they did to him. Expect dissonance. And in his letter, Peter's trying to normalize the ways that followers of Jesus often get the short end of the stick, and then they get beaten with it because of who they are. But, and Peter's really clear on this in his whole letter, you really should read the whole letter this week. He says, be there a step, better not be because you're just a jerk. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't let it be just because you really haven't bothered to mature in Christ. Or in fact, you are a terrible neighbor or harshly critical, or blissfully unconcerned with people's sorrow or troubles. No. I mean, if your holy no is getting mocked, which it will, make sure the holy yes is being lived. Our, our, our lives should be so marked by the good actions that we take because of our holiness, because of the God that we follow and image and reflect, that even people who think we are wrong who say we're wrong, who point to us and say, Wah! have to say, yeah, but, ah. They're also picking up food for hungry people on Saturday. When we focus our hearts and minds on God, worshiping him, witnessing for him, working for his glory, willing to let the Holy Spirit change us from the inside out, we begin to see how we are a people of a holy yes. We live out Allowed yes to life, yes to God, yes to creation, yes to relationship, yes to care, yes to protection for the poor, yes to help for the hurting. Yes, even as that yes is defined under the authority of God so that our holy no sometimes grinds on people's minds, we're going to be a people who are also known for the holy yes, which ultimately will bring glory to God, even as it concretely brings good for neighbor. Well, I really should stop. (sighs) Thank you. Let me conclude with this. Thanks, Thomas. There is an obvious problem with this holiness idea of God. When we look in the mirror, we don't seem very holy at all. I don't. And some of the very people who think they're holy are the worst of them all. Filled with pride, unrighteous anger, very unjesusy judgment. And we struggle, right? We want to be God's holy people. But the truth is we can't do it on our own. And I just want to finish with this. First, to remember, always remember, Jesus did this before us. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the children of men could become the children of God, right? Exchange places with us. 
which means that we, though we struggle, though we know we are not holy, but God is making us holy, we live in that tension, we are under, in, covered by Jesus, who did live the perfect holy no and the perfect holy yes, and he did it. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. When Jesus says a holy no to certain things and a holy yes to others, he does it in Olin's name, in Peter's name, in Leslie's name, in Dale's name. Yeah. He did it for you on behalf of you. No, no, no. Just write down his name there. Yep. Good. And so we have to remember. That's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We can actually be the holy people of God and not drag the guilt around with us. We can actually get up, dust ourselves off, ask for forgiveness, and keep going. Thank you, Jesus, for doing it for us. You offered the holy no. You offered the holy yes, and you did it on our behalf. So take heart. If you're feeling discouraged, take heart. And then the second, we can't do it alone, is that we actually need each other. Not just that we need support and strength from each other. We do. But because we can't actually be God's holy people without each other. The whole idea is a plurality. This is all us language. There's no such thing as individualistic Holiness. Holiness is a family gig, and we're living this together. And so as we close today, I'm going to invite uh, Mike to come with his team. They're going to finish up, uh, lead us in one beautiful finishing song that takes us back to God and his holiness. We've been challenging all of you to consider incorporating spiritual practices into your lives, as well as the practice of spiritual friendship. And I want to just hone that and say that's one of the key ways we can discuss with each other. What does holy no look like in your life? What does a holy yes look like in your life? The formation of the spirit in that. But also a critical part of that as we move into the fall as a church is getting into small groups together. And we're coming out of COVID and we're still trying to figure this out and I get all that. But I'm really asking, I'm asking you directly to really consider seriously being in a small group this fall. And some of you, I'm asking you to lead it and host it. And so I'm just putting it out there bluntly to you. It's really critical for our holiness as a church, as well as our being one, that we get in small groups this fall. And so right there, Eileen, give a wave. Um, There's a sign-up list there for small groups. Indicate if you're interested, able, uh, willing to lead, willing to facilitate. And we're going to put some small groups together uh, to start in October. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.